This is episode 278, entitled Bonaparte's Retreat, the title song for which you'll hear at the very end by Glenn Campbell. It's a wonderful song. And you've just heard Hand Me Down World by the Guess Who. And I want to talk a little bit about the nature of truth and the world in which we live and the nature of the uh, discovery and uncovering of truth when it is absolutely and totally masked and um, hidden through the stratagems of Satan. Because the... um, world in which we live currently is a world in which truth is coming out on many fronts uh, in um, a depth that I don't remember ever in my experience of life when uh, long um, burrowing and long established and anchored patterns of false understandings and suppression of what is actually the case in human affairs and human nature and human society and human the whole search for what it is to be a human being and why we're here and where we have come from and where we're going to go 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 where um this um deepest yearning and question of the human heart has been suppressed by false understandings you could call it seculosity to quote david zoll's book and uh these uh, uh, enormously powerful suppressants have kept the truth of life in many departments from coming out. And now we have uh, in our world, <clears throat> I would say, uh, really incarnate through the current president, um, a, a kind of uh, weird, uh, uh, extraordinarily blunt, and at times, by the world standards, highly awkward um, uncovering of things that have been um, very uh, powerfully covered over, whether the agency, the blunt trowel of uh, certain personalities, um, exposure of things is a good way to do it. It may be the only way, and I don't even use the name of the particular personality involved, but something is happening that involves an uncovering of things that is extremely threatening to the powers that be. I've lived with this all my life, but I've lived with uh, power uh, being in the hands of um, of dupes and um, controlling Byzantine Machiavellian forces that uh, are now oddly uh, being exposed. And I want to talk about that a little bit, not as a political uh, issue, but as a... Um, as a, with three examples of how this is going, uh, which is sort of to show the real drama of the human being. Now, the original title of the uh, cast was Bowtie, based upon the title of the movie theater in Greenwich, where I got uh, the chance to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the new Quentin Tarantino film, on the first day of its uh, appearance last week. I went and the place was jammed. And um, as I watched this movie, I was aware, I was interested in going to see it because it's been terrorized in the, uh, among the sort of critical world of New York City, certainly the New Yorker, but all over the place as being a kind of a regressive, um, a, a regressive bit of uh, anti-PC um, reminiscence of uh, the year 1969 from February to August with, a, with, a, with an inner spring of the Manson um, murders. And that is uh, the attack upon Tarantino on all forces for being regressive in his attitudes is a clear uh, fact. You know, he's the coolest person in the world, supposedly, and then now all of a sudden he's horrible. The... um 
so I went to see what, what, is, what has gotten the people so hot and bothered. The movie is very good, and I, I lived that. I didn't live it in L.A., but I lived the world because we were absolute movie mavens when we were um, 13, 14, 12, 10. We lived, uh, you know, uh, I saw a Spaghetti Western in 1966, Pour un poignet de dollars for a handful of dollars with Clint Eastwood in, based on Yoyimbo, which I'd already seen when I was only, golly, 14, 15 years old, and we lived the world that is being described uh, in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and, and uh, what uh, was striking to me about the film, not that it's a purely sort of um, candy and aspic type of um, um, objectification of attitudes from 1969 among what was then the establishment liberal media elite in Hollywood. No, it's a, it's a picture of something more important. Uh, and the specific truth that the movie is um, tying, uh, going with, it's an exposure of the hippies. It's an exposure of the hippies. Yes, it's easy to say the Manson uh, family uh, down out at the Span Ranch in um, Chatsworth, California. It's easy to say, well, that's what it's, they're an easy target. Well, they're really not an easy target because a lot of them are innocent of the murders themselves. But the <clears throat> extended confrontation, especially pastorally, when the, um, when the lead uh, character um, makes a call on the Bruce Stern character who's so afflicted and uh, he really makes a pastoral call against uh, satanic odds very powerfully and stands up for the right and good. Something is being stated about the uh, the way the sort of hippies finally won, you might say, uh, oddly enough, through the Manson murders and the sort of deluge of hippie thought that uh, kind of um, flooded and destroyed a lot of other things. And he unmasks that at a very specific moment in time. And then he turns the tables by um, giving a, what is today called a faux view of history. He, 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 uh, he, uh, he, he, he tells a different result uh, and it's very moving and very powerful. And there's actually a real hero. There's a, there's a genuine uh, hero uh, in, the, um, in the movie who actually does a heroic thing. And the hippies are um, fought successfully and vanquished. And uh, it's a very odd... But the only way he can pull it off is by uh, retelling a vital story in American history with a different conclusion. And so, in a way, it's magical thinking because it didn't happen that way. The hippies won. You know, I remember. I remember sitting in a very, very fancy New York apartment in the late '60s um, that was empty. And what we people used to do is the children and grandchildren of very wealthy people. In, who had Fifth Avenue and Park Avenue apartments who's, who were away, let's say, living in Naples or, you know, Palm Beach or someplace for the summer or Maine, they would sort of, we would go and our friends from school would, we'd, we'd go and we'd go to party all weekend, as it were, in these fancy apartments that belonged to the grandson or the son, but nobody was there to supervise and we were listening to, to the Grateful Dead. I mean, I remember so well people, you've heard of them, sitting around with my old friends playing Grateful Dead and I just thought it was appalling music. Just uh, and it's not. It was good music. Now I know, but be that as may, at the time, it was so countercultural, and everybody was. There was so much sex in the air, and so much this, and we were so young, and we were so Ivy League, and yet we were so anti Ivy League, and uh, th 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 that won. And the movie tells the story. What if it hadn't won? What if? What if that? What if? Uh, Phil Lesh and Jerry Garcia hadn't won the day. Well, I mean, Luke Rowland, I love you, and I agree with you, by the way, about the dead. I agree with you, Luke. Have, nevertheless, other things were related to this, and the 
the movie is extraordinary in uh, pushing back against a victory that we now see has become absolutely overwhelming. Somebody said, well, you know, you have a friend who was involved in the SDS at Harvard, and now this friend is at the, in the very heart of the swamp in the nation's capital. And I said, well, it's a very natural progression if you were there. It's a very natural progression from, uh, from, the, from the SDS to the swamp. <laughs> that works. Well, um, uh, Tarantino has uh, fought back against it, and he's, un- he's unveiled something, unmasked something that is very powerful. So even the king of cool is now being bitterly attacked for a, a view which unmasks something that doesn't want to be unmasked. Now let's talk about two other elements. Um, the... Uh, the um, the Baltimore question is one I don't want to get into the politics of it, but I know Baltimore. I mean, I lived in Washington for years and years, and friends of mine. I mean, that was it. What's so interesting about what's happening in Baltimore is that somebody is actually telling the truth about for the sake of the people who actually live in Baltimore. It has really nothing at this level to do with race. It has to do with, with an advocacy for people who are being, like the people in Puerto Rico who, who have been profoundly misserved, not underserved, but misserved, and really uh, uh, really their, their welfare has been countered by corrupt forces that are being unmasked currently, and uh, um, it, it has nothing to do with race. It has to do with truth. Uh, we were in Baltimore recently, and I mean, I, I felt so threatened when Mary and I got slightly lost in an area of Baltimore visiting an old friend of ours. Uh, so physically threatened, just as I, Mary is threatened in the subways in New York. You, w- women are not able to be not harassed right now by aggressive panhandling. I'm talking about women being harassed by illegal aggressive panhandling and nothing being done about it. Now, that, that's something that's happening there that's important. That has to be unmasked. It, it's, uh, it has nothing to do with identity politics. It has to do with truth. So what's happening in, in Baltimore is an extraordinary unmasking. But I want to go out of that field. You may feel differently, and of course you're entitled. Do you live in Baltimore? Um, I had a long chat with someone the other day who lives in Baltimore in very pretty circumstances in so-called hunt country, but this person has lived in town most of her life, and boy, did she have a lot to say. This was all before this current truth. Uh, you, you pull a rock up, and underneath it you find snakes and uh, like that uh, the famous um the famous uh, spider pit scene in King Kong from 1933 when when all the the sailors are dropped into a horrible pit and there we see what's really scuttering around and scuttling around and it's horrible well uh, the truth is being the light is shining and when that happens that's why they wanted to kill Christ because he shone light on an established system of thought that was in fact bondage he, he shone light on an established system of thought in his own religious and political context that was, in fact, bondage for the very people who gave it credit. And uh, by doing so, he, um, like in Jesus Christ Superstar, but in life, he, uh, one man had to die for the people because uh, those forces could not take it lying down. Well, I want to give you a, another a sort of different, uh, and in fact, more uh, um, perilous uh, um, thought. You know, I talk about romantic love all the time and people don't like it. It, No one ever pushes back on the substance of it because everybody who's ever been in love understands. 
instinctively that romantic love is a driving uh, and universally uh, overarchingly compelling force in human affairs because of the need that people have for connection with another living entity that is simply a, a, a this world form of the need for God and the need for a hookup with God. And so people never deny it, but they get a little awkward and they sort of look at their feet and they sort of say, oh, well, I wish you'd talk about other things. You know, it's easier to talk about other things. Well, we were watching, um, I was watching the movie, The Lady Eve. It's a famous Preston Sturgis 1941 movie with Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda. And like Preston Sturgis movies, I find them tiresome and often um, with long, uh, rather overly literary and somewhat unsuccessful digressions until the ending. And the ending of the movie is absolutely devastating because what it is saying... Is that the Henry Fonda character? It's I, there's no spoiler for a 1941 movie. Are you kidding? He um, falls in love with a woman, and uh, and uh, she um, she loves him. And then he says something that damages her pride. He says something in an intimate conversation with the Barbara Stanwyck character. They love each other, but it damages her pride very, very deeply, very, very deeply. And she gets so upset, her pride having been damaged, that she resolves to destroy destroy his life as an act of revenge, and she comes back masquerading as another person who, uh, uh, with just enough changes that, because uh, she knows he's sort of a bit of an idiot, a fool, a, a lovable fool, but that he'll fall for her, but in her different incarnation, which he does, thinking she's somebody other than she is, and um, he marries her in an Episcopal service. It's very wonderful that you can tell that the, 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 the rector is wearing an academic gown. Everybody listen, listen. The rector is conducting a marriage in an Episcopal church for these so-called high society people, and uh, uh, he's wearing an academic hood. <laughs> you know, are you out of your mind? I mean, where have we come? That is the way it was. But anyway, um, listen. So um, he marries her, and then she, her very uh, highly thought out and guileful um, uh, plan of vengeance is able to be implemented on their wedding night on a train. They're spending their wedding night on a train to their honeymoon and uh, it completely destroys him. She then um, uh, finds uh, that she regrets what she's done, needless to say, because he's a lovely guy and she really did uh, destroy his whole emotional life, his whole edifice, what little there was of it, this sweet but rather feckless chap. And um, she realizes with tremendous insight that the only way she's going to get him back is by reproducing the the uh, the conditions under which she, in her earlier form, uh, um, got him to fall in love with her. So she conspires in the very last uh, scene of the movie to reproduce the precise uh, conditions by which he fell in love with her in her earlier form that he didn't realize he'd married in a different form. And she does. She re- reproduces the exact conditions and the exact dramatic, rather, pratfall that led to his falling dramatically and rather childishly or childlikely in love with her. And he does so, and he immediately does, because he's catapulted instantly Instantly catapulted back to that moment of total connection when he fell in love with her and she has her way and then it has a wonderful concluding line but the point is <coughs> girls that this is how men are they are actually focused on the uh, earliest uh, uh, um, 
uh, genesis of the relationship. That is how to get to them. You want him to love you in your present incarnation. You want to love him in the present, which of course is mental health good, right? Mental hygiene, yes. But that's not the way how men work, and this is the point. The truth is that men are do not live in the present. <clears throat> I'd like it if they did, but they don't for the most part. They live in the past. And so she lives in the present. And that's why she's able to completely mess him up, because she's not snared psychically by his incredibly retro emotional life, which there are other scenes in which that's revealed. So she has to replicate the conditions of their first meeting a few years before, several years before or whatever, to um, create the emotional um, catalysis, the catabolic reaction in his emotional brain, which allows him to uh, instantly fall in love with her again. Now, let me give you another example. What I saying the truth about relationships is, is that men uh, always need to go back to the time when they first loved you. They cannot be told, I want to be loved as I am now. It simply doesn't work because they don't work that way. Because something happened catabolically in their emotional life when they first fell in love with you, when they first saw you, when they first were able to really talk to you about who they really were, that is decisive and unrepeatable except to actually go back. A very good friend of mine, I said to him, he was saying, you know, I'm really having trouble. I love my wife. I've married her for 10 years, but it's really, there are times when I just get so, I, it's just nothing there at all. It's flat, flat, flat. And I said, well, then have, have you tried going back in your mind in some situation when you're with her alone? Go back in your mind to the situation that where you first really were able to truly be yourself with her, or she really touched that part of you and fireworks went off. And he called me back the next day. He said, I don't understand it. We're Completely. As soon as I went back in my mind to that first time, I didn't tell her that, but as soon as I went back to that first time, whatever that means, I, uh, it, I was there. And she was there, and everything came together. Now, let me give you another example of this. In the movie and the book, um, A Town Like Alice, uh, a, a woman and a man meet up after a terrible trauma during the Second World War involving death, murder, a, revenge, a horrible atrocity uh, in a Japanese uh, prisoner of war camp, uh, which they're both party to, a man and a woman, a terrible, not party to, they're both witnesses and actors and uh, objects of, a terrible thing happens. And they meet later after a tremendous amount of false starts, and she has desperate hope that they're going to be able to get married and love one another, and he's completely unable to. He is wonderful. He wants to, but he is totally paralyzed six years later when he meets her, and she doesn't know what to do, and she doesn't know what to do, and she finally, by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit tells her, put on the sorry or the sarong or the put on the, 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 the little piece of horribly torn clothing that you were wearing that first time in the Japanese prison of war camp, which she has. She, for some reason, she has it, and she puts on this incredibly destroyed sort of sorry sarong thing that she has, and she puts it on late at night, and she walks into the room, and he's there, and bang, everything happens. Well, that's a truth. What have I said? Um, the truth has to come out, and the truth is that men live in the past, and the romantic life is uh, way back. Burton Cummings knows this. Uh, the romantic life... Uh, uh, begins and in some ways ends in the connection that happened at the beginning. And when you know that, that's not a bad thing. It's just really the truth, and I'm uncovering it for you. Um, other people have uncovered the truth about Baltimore, and it's very resistible. And uh, Tarantino has uncovered some powerful truths about hippiness and uh, a, kind of, a certain kind of anti-establishment nihilism that was actually pretty bestial and really pretty uh, guileful and pretty devilish, as uh, Charles uh, as Manson showed 
actually. And by doing so, he's brought the wrath of the world upon him. Thank you so much, and I love you. And we're now going to hear Bonaparte's retreat. Met the girl I love In a town way down in Dixie Beneath the stars up above She was the sweetest girl I ever did see So I held her in my arms And told her of her many charms I kissed her while the guitars played The bone of parchment Everybody played the bone of parts retreat. Everybody. 